Uh, we're, so we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer, and what we're doing is uh, working our way through this prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. And we're going to say it again this morning. We said it last week. Uh, we're going to recite it again. And this, this week I changed it slightly because uh, with the Lord's Prayer, you know, there's that bit at the end about um, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, and that's not actually in the original version. You might be surprised to know, but it's not, if, if you just open up Matthew, it's not there. And if you open up Luke, it's not there either. It's in the margin. But because of that, I've left it out this morning, so we're, we're going to say the abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer without the great crescendo at the end, okay? Hopefully we can handle that. So I think, Benny, on the next slide is... Uh, there it is. Okay, so shall we say it together? Let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, as we talk this morning, these words would become real in our hearts and our minds, that this would be more than just a prayer that you gave us, just words that you gave us to say, but this would become the expression of our lives and a powerful story that we're being drawn into. I pray as a church, Lord Jesus, you'd make us a praying church. And you'd remind us of the central importance that prayer has in our lives and in our church community. I pray that prayer wouldn't be drudgery for us, but it would be exciting and a way of being connected to your story that's going on all around us. So, Holy Spirit, come and teach us this morning about your kingdom, what it is, and how we can pray for your kingdom to come and participate in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 6, if you have a Bible, uh, that is where we find this version of the Lord's Prayer, the longest version of the Lord's Prayer. There's, there's a more abbreviated version in Luke, uh, but Matthew is the one that has, um, has, has the full version. So last week we looked at the first couple of lines of this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And, and we talked about how behind these words, behind these phrases, uh, there are some stories that are going on, some stories from Israel's history, the story of the Exodus and the story of the returning from exile and how Jesus is evoking those stories simply by talking about our Father, simply by inviting us to pray, hallowed be your name. He's bringing back to our minds these stories and inviting us into this new story that God is at work writing, the story of new exodus and the story of a returning from exile. And that's really the whole framing story of the Lord's Prayer is this huge restorative work that God's now doing through Jesus, this new thing that's coming about. And so Jesus is doing much more than giving people words to pray. He's giving them a story to be part of. And he goes on after these first couple of lines, which sort of set the big picture, the big, the big scene, and then he says, probably the most familiar words of the whole prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, these are some of the most prayed words in the world. People say these all the time, millions of people every day. It just comes out, wrote, you know, the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. But I wonder how many of us really 
know what we're praying for and what we're asking for when we pray, thy kingdom come. What are we actually praying? What are we actually asking God for, asking God to do when we say to him, your kingdom come? Do we know what, what is this kingdom? What is this thing that we're wanting to come? Because if the kingdom's going to come, we want to know what it is when we see it so we know that it's come. And so we, we, we often have a vague kind of idea maybe of what we're praying, but when we start talking about God's kingdom, it often gets very fuzzy. And we've got to start by saying, well, what is, what is it that we're asking God to do and to bring? What do we want to come on earth as it is in heaven? When Jesus first spoke these words to people in Palestine in the first century, they had in their minds an idea of what they thought God's kingdom was all about. Because as they looked around them, what they saw was that they were an occupied people. They saw that all around them there was a massive kingdom in the first century in Palestine and throughout the entire Mediterranean, stretched from one end to the other. Just about the entire known world demanded absolute allegiance, controlled every part of everyday life, a huge kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. If you're living in the first century, this is, that's the kingdom that you know. That's the kingdom you're familiar with. There's this, there's this empire. We call it the empire of Rome, but it's a kingdom. It's a regime. It's a government. It's a system that, that exerted an incredible influence on people's lives and, and kept them in allegiance to the ultimate figurehead of the kingdom, of the empire, who was Caesar. So everything that Jesus says about the kingdom was heard in the context of the dominant kingdom of the day. And in reality, for Jewish people in the first century, they, they'd really been passed from kingdom to kingdom to kingdom for 500 years. I mean, they started off the kingdom of Babylon and then the kingdom of Persia and then the kingdom of Greece and now the kingdom of Rome. And this has been all they've known. This, they've just known life under a kingdom, life within an empire. And they didn't think too much of the king that was in charge. I mean, Caesar was, was the one who, who controlled life and who led a kingdom that occupied the people of Israel and refused to give them their land in a free and independent sense, a land that they believed they, they rightfully owned. And even the king, King Herod, that Caesar put in charge over Judea, over a little patch of the empire, as far as the Jews was, were concerned, he, he was a joke. I mean, this guy was a sham. He was in the pockets of the Romans. He was completely compromised and sold out to the Roman Empire. So they weren't really too fussed on the kings and the kingdoms that they saw around them. And what they really wanted was to, was to get rid of this kingdom so that they could be an independent people. And as they carried on life there in the shadow of the empire, Judaism within the first century developed this real hope and this real expectation that God was going to come and do something dramatic, do something different, and do something new, that God was going to set up his own kingdom. And they got this not just out of their heads, they got this from the Old Testament. They got this because they read books like Isaiah and, and Zechariah, and especially Daniel, and they read there this promise of God that eventually all these kingdoms of the world were going to roll one to the other, to the other, to the other. But then eventually the day would come when God would step in on the scene and he would establish his kingdom. It's not even called the kingdom of Israel. It's called the kingdom of God. It's this is God himself would come back to Israel, return to his people, and he would set up this enduring kingdom. And Daniel says, it's right there in Daniel 7, that his, his kingdom is going to crush all these other kingdoms. 
It's going to crush these other governments and God's kingdom will be a kingdom that will never end. So this is the hope that's swirling around on the streets of Palestine in the first century. And they're looking around and wondering and waiting for the time when God is going to come and finally bring about his kingdom and get rid of this pagan kingdom that's occupying us at the moment, recruit an army, rise up against Rome, defeat the Romans, and usher in this great kingdom where God's going to rule over Israel. And then throughout the whole world, the nations would come to know God and his light would go out through Jerusalem to the whole earth. Israel would be like a a military superpower. This is the expectation. So when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, this is what people are thinking. Because Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom. First words out of his mouth after he um, got baptized and goes into the wilderness, he, he comes back and he starts saying, repent because the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God. And people start thinking, maybe he's the guy. Maybe he's the one that's going to be our deliverer. Maybe he's going to be the one who's going to raise up an army and, and, and throw off the shackles of this, this Roman occupation, finally defeat these Romans and give us back our land. And finally, God's going to set up this kingdom that he's always promised us. Maybe this is the guy. And then Jesus one day goes up on a mountainside in, in Galilee, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and a huge crowd come to him, and he delivers this what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And everyone's waiting there with bated breath to see what Jesus is going to say about the kingdom. How, you know, really what they're waiting for is, is what's the military strategy that's finally going to get rid of these guys, Jesus, because this is a pretty bad situation, and we know that you might be the guy, and so how are we going to do it? Everyone's kind of got one hand on their sword, ready to go. You know, what, what's it going to take, Jesus? And, and Jesus stands up and he opens his mouth and the first words out of his mouth in this sermon, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you just have to try and picture how utterly bizarre this must have sounded to people who were expecting a military conqueror to recruit an army and destroy the Romans. I mean, they're expecting him to say something like, blessed are the strong, blessed are the valiant, blessed are the brave, blessed are the courageous, blessed are the warriors. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then then he goes on and he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Not not the ones who persecute others, but blessed are those who are actually persecuted by other people because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you can just imagine everyone's kind of looking around going, "What, what kind of kingdom are you talking? This is not the one that we've been expecting. This is not the one Daniel talked about. What, what kind of crazy path are you on? And Jesus isn't done. I mean, you read the next couple of chapters and he says things like this. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is not, this, these are not really fighting words. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, and by the way, that's a direct reference to Roman law where a soldier could, could force a civilian to carry his pack one mile. That was, just, that was the law. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, 
Go to. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And then the clincher really in verse 44, one of the hardest things these people had to hear. Love your enemies. And who were their enemies? I mean, they might have had interpersonal conflicts, but when they thought about the kingdom of the world that was around them, the kingdom of Rome, that's their enemy. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What they wanted him to say was hate your enemies and chop off the heads of those who persecute you. Right? I mean, that's basically, that, that would be normal. That would be expected. But he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is just such a different kingdom to the one everybody was expecting Jesus to start talking about and God to start setting up. Because what everybody wanted and what everybody thought was going to happen was this kingdom that was defined by exercising power over other people. Force and coercion. What, what people really were expecting is for God to match might with might. So the kingdom of Rome is, is a powerful kingdom and a pretty brutal kingdom that exercises coercion and lives by the sword and forces its will on the populace. And, and people expected what God is going to do is match might with might. He's going to use those methods and those strategies, but even better. So he's just going to crush them. But Jesus comes to reveal, and this is what's fundamentally different about the Sermon on the Mount to every other kind of ethic, is that the whole, the whole thrust of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is this power under others. It's exercising power under other people by serving them in love and by placing ourselves lower than and, and not standing on our entitlements and our rights and not coercing other people, but simply by loving and standing in the face of the empire and allowing ourselves to be slapped and loving our enemies in return and even praying for them. This is the heart, I think, of the difference between the kingdom of God and all the kingdoms of the world. That the kingdoms of the world exercise, they, they live and breathe by power over it's by force, by coercion, by policy, by legislation, by law. And the nature of God's kingdom is that it lives and breathes by exercising power under. It's still power, and it's incredibly powerful. But it's not might, and it's not power, and it's not oppression. And it's not the politics of coercion. It's this loving, serving, self-lowering, self-giving kingdom. And I don't know that we've really got that because there's still a lot of Christians who think that God's kingdom is going to come by exercising power over. It's been a huge agenda of a huge part of the Christian church for years and years to try and bring about the kingdom and think the way the kingdom is going to come is by obtaining for ourselves political power. This is, this is epidemic in the church in the West, that we think our main goal as a church is to obtain for ourselves political power and to influence policy and to influence legislation so that we can have laws that somehow reflect the laws of the Bible. And then maybe if we can do that and we can influence law, then we will have this Christian nation. 
and we'll be able to, you know, take New Zealand back for God or, or, or however the slogan goes. I, I don't, when you look in the Gospels, I don't see Jesus having any agenda to create a Christian nation. I don't think Jesus came to set up a Christian nation. What I see him setting up in the Sermon on the Mount is this alternative way of being human that is not top-down and it's not power over and it's not influencing the kingdoms of the world through influencing law and legislation. It's serving others with love and being an alternative countercultural community that looks different to the kingdoms of the world. Because if our only agenda is to try and influence politics, legislation, and policy, what we are trying to do is create a religious version of the kingdoms of the world. What we're trying to do is create a sanitized, moral, Christian version of the kingdoms of the world. God didn't call us to create another kingdom of the world or a Christian kingdom of the world. He calls us to create something that is categorically different which is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's not a political kingdom in the sense of this power over idea. It doesn't mean we're politically irrelevant, but it means that primarily our job is not to gain political power. It's to be different and to be human in a different way, in a way that bubbles up in all kinds of places, wherever we are, with a radically different way of living and being and, and, and relating to the way in which the world relates. This, I think, was much closer to Jesus' agenda than trying to influence the empire to be something, to do something, to change something. He came to to set up this totally different and totally new type of thing. And this culminates on the cross. I mean, Jesus on the cross is crucified by the kingdoms of the world. God could easily have made it otherwise, and Jesus could have called down legions of angels to save him and to demolish the Roman garrison that was standing there and to exercise his power over the kingdoms of the world. But he allowed himself to be crucified and executed by the kingdoms of the world. And ironically and paradoxically, here in the heart of the gospel, it's precisely as Jesus is crucified by the kingdoms of the world that evil is defeated. And this is what Rome never realized when they put him on the cross, is that in that act of Jesus being destroyed by the state, the greatest evil, sin, Satan, and the mess that humanity had got itself into is destroyed in that process. The powers of darkness and the sin that has kept us in bondage since Adam are dismantled and disarmed in the cross, but not through coercion and not through force and not through military strength or political power, but through a crucified man. So I think the kingdom of God, maybe the simplest way of describing it is this, the kingdom of God is a new social reality that looks like Jesus, and it's shaped by the cross, and it's defined by the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God is a new social reality, an entirely new way of being human that looks like Jesus. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of the world. It looks like Jesus. And it's shaped by the cross, that cruciform love that lays one's life down. Because what Jesus is ultimately doing on the cross is practicing the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. 
I mean, Jesus is embodying that on the cross. It's shaped by the cross and it's defined by the Sermon on the Mount. You read through that sermon, this is what the kingdom is all about. It's an entirely new set of social relationships that lead us to act differently, to speak differently, to relate differently to one another and to everyone that we relate to in our lives. Now, the the question, I guess, is that when you get to the other side of the cross, nothing really seems like it's changed because Rome's still in charge. And today we look around, there's still huge suffering, brutality, violence, pain in the world. So if this kingdom came through the cross, why, why, why does it not seem to be here? You know, what, why, why is there still so much evil in the world? And the Bible seems to answer that question by pointing us forward, by leading us forward to the day when God is going to make all things new when the kingdom is going to be here fully, when Jesus is going to have all authority over all things and there will be a completely new social reality, which the prophets called God's shalom, God's peace, which will reign over the whole earth. One day this this world, this culture and society will be totally transformed. But the scriptures also don't lead us to simply hang out and wait for that day and do nothing in between. Because a couple of days after Jesus was crucified, he walked out of a tomb. And in walking out of a tomb, he begun that future in the present. The kingdom kick-started. That, that future that God has promised, when the kingdom is going to be here finally and fully, walked out of a tomb that Sunday morning. And since then, Jesus has been bringing about this kingdom through his people on earth day by day as we embody and practice this new social reality. And as we pray, God, your kingdom come. And as we participate in that, by bringing about the kingdom simply through the way that we speak and think and act and relate in our lives to other people. The kingdom has been coming about ever since. And I think maybe this is one of the reasons that God didn't just, when Jesus died, didn't just flick a switch so that suddenly the kingdom's here fully and the whole job's done. Because God's intention has always been to bring about his purposes through his people. To bring about change through his people, through Israel, now through the church. God's working through people. He doesn't just zap individuals. He doesn't just beam his will down. He works through us and he wants us to be agents of the kingdom. As we are transformed and we become kingdom people, God's will is that we then become the bearers of this kingdom in the world. God's kingdom comes through us and we slowly push it forward and inch it forward in the power of the spirit, creating this whole new social reality wherever we go. So we're moving the story forward, just like we talked about last week, moving the story forward of the Exodus and the return from exile. We're moving forward the story of the kingdom. But again, not by exercising power over, but by exercising loving power under. It looks like Jesus. It's shaped by the cross and it's defined by the Sermon on the Mount. That's the nature of the kingdom. And when you really get down to asking what this looks like, you bump into the next phrase in this prayer where Jesus says, your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, we stumble here because it seems to have been the agenda of the church for millennia to try and get people from earth to heaven. This seems to have been what we think Jesus is telling us to do. We've got to get as many people to heaven when they die as we can. And of course, that's a good thing and we want to see people uh, saved and go to heaven when they die. But the whole emphasis has been on getting to heaven when you die. And very little of our emphasis has been on what happens in this life right now. 
And rather than this focus on from earth to heaven, the whole thrust, I think, of Jesus' prayer and Jesus' ministry and the mission of the church in the present is bringing heaven to earth. This is the way things are moving. It's bringing heaven to earth. If, if heaven is the realm where God's will is perfectly done, then what Jesus is inviting us to pray is that something of that would be mirrored on earth. In some small way, that would be replicated on earth. But again, not coerced, not in this militant conformity to God's will, but in a way that looks like Jesus, in a way that's shaped by the cross, and in a way that's defined by the Sermon on the Mount. That we would bring a piece of heaven to earth, and that something of that heavenly reality would start to take shape in our lives. And if that's going to happen, then there's no way the kingdom can just be this private little spiritual thing that we carry around in our hearts. And, and sometimes this is what we've reduced it to. You know, the kingdom is this thing that I've got, this little treasure inside of me, or maybe something that we just keep in church. Because we have this split-level view of the world where God lives in the upstairs and real life happens downstairs. You know, that's my job, that's real life, that's my gym membership, that's my coffee group, but God's up in the attic. And that's where Bible study and prayer and spiritual disciplines exist and going to church. And we keep God up in the attic and we lock the kingdom up in the attic because it doesn't really affect real life. The thing is, God doesn't want to stay in the attic. God wants to come down onto the ground floor. And the kingdom is about bringing it down into the ground floor and having that social reality take shape in every single area of your life. So God's kingdom is not a private little spiritual thing. It's a very public thing. It's all of life. It's as much about who you are in your workplace, in your family, within your neighborhood, within your, your social circle tomorrow as it is about who we are here in church today. You've got to get past the split-level dualism, spiritual-secular, where the kingdom is a spiritual realm thing and it's, it doesn't affect... There is no secular realm. I hate to break it, no such thing. Not in the Bible. Everything, every part of your life is spiritual. Your work is a sacred calling. What you're studying at university is a sacred pathway. It's all spiritual. And the kingdom affects every single part of it. It affects every social relationship you have. Who you are as an employer. Who you are as an employee. Who you are as a tenant. A landlord. A customer. A producer. Husband, wife, parent, son, daughter, aunt, uncle. Every single uh, interaction that you have, every hat that you wear, every social role that you play in every single facet of your life. If the kingdom doesn't intersect that social relationship somewhere, it's not really the kingdom. The kingdom's all of life. It's this hugely expansive thing. And so we need to start thinking through, well, how does this work? Not just in church on Sunday, but in my workplace on Monday. What does it mean for God's will to be done? on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for the kingdom to come? So I want to invite you to do a little exercise, okay? Um, <clears throat> we're not going to pray as such, but I want to ask you just to close your eyes for a minute, okay? Let's all do this. Just close your eyes. And we're going to do an imaginative exercise here. Because I want you to just picture for a minute where you spend most of your time, the place that you're spending most of your time these days. If, if it's at work, picture, picture work. If it's in your, in, in, at home looking after kids, picture that home environment. If it's, if it's somewhere else, picture that. You know, where you're giving most of your time during the week, picture that. And really picture it. I mean, picture the people that you're working with. Get them in your mind. Get that imagination clicking in. What, what is the scene? What does it look like? 
And what I want you to do is to picture what would it look like for God's kingdom to come into that context. Think again about the the, the Sermon on the Mount, some of these phrases that we read out. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. Someone asks of you, give to them. Love your enemies. Think about what that means in terms of the issues that you face and and the way you relate to people every day. Think about that in terms of the meetings you have at work. Think about it in terms of how you manage your supply chain issues, how you negotiate contracts, how you run your property portfolio, how you relate to your kids. who you are. Who are you in that scene? What does it look like for God's kingdom to come? What would it look like if God's kingdom did come? How, who would you be? How would you relate? How would things change? How would other people change? Some of you are thinking, my kids might do what I asked them to do for a change. But what would it look like? All right, you can open your eyes. One of the things that happens when you're living in any kind of empire, just as the Jews lived within an empire in the first century, we're living within a kind of empire uh, because there is a dominant ideology in the world which typically rejects God and pursues self and follows self-interest. And one of the first things that happens when you live within an empire is that your imagination gets taken captive. And you actually become numb And you become unable to really picture much else than the way things are right now. And I want to argue that bringing about the kingdom and even praying for the kingdom actually starts by reclaiming our imagination. By reclaiming what Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination. Our ability to picture an alternative reality. So the the first question isn't, is that practical? Is that feasible? Is that viable the first question is is it imaginable because if you can't even imagine it there's no way the kingdom's going to come this this whole deal begins by ordinary jesus people like you and i just starting to picture what would happen if a new social reality took hold oh i know there's a million questions that come out of this you know does this mean i should just be abused you know turning the other two and we're not saying that this is about acting in love, acting in, out of love for God, for self, and for others. And it's not acting out of love for other people by letting them walk all over you, and by, certainly not by letting them abuse you. That's not acting in love for them or yourself or God. So there certainly is a place for justice and for consequences. But what does it mean to begin to imagine a new reality starting to take shape? And when you now start praying, your kingdom come, which I hope you will, and start thinking along those lines and start praying that prayer. When you pray to God, your kingdom come, that's what you're praying for, that picture. So don't let it go. Don't just dismiss it as a fanciful little exercise. But when you next pray to God, your kingdom come, that's the picture you're praying for. Who you were in that scene, who others were, what what God's up to, that's what you're praying for specifically and tangibly in the midst of your workplace or your family or your sports team 
or your neighborhood. That's what it means for God's kingdom to come. I was talking to a lady in our church after the service last Sunday, and she was sharing a story with me about her workplace. She manages about 70 people in a call center, and there's a guy, one of her employees, uh, suffers from epilepsy. And one day he was sitting at his desk, and I, I don't think he actually had a seizure, but he had a real panic attack, real anxiety attack. And he called his wife from his desk. Couldn't really move. He called his wife, and his wife called uh, this lady, his, his boss. And in the context of that conversation that she had with the guy's wife, the wife asked her if she'd pray with this guy. And she said, you know, this would be the most counterintuitive thing that she ever would have done. She, she didn't, wouldn't really ever think to pray for him, pray with him, anything like that. But she was prompted and partly forced because the wife had asked her to do it, you know, kind of puts her in a situation that she called this guy into her office and talked with him and in the context of that conversation just said to him, hey, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And right there in the middle of a commercial business, she prayed simply and humbly for this man and for his health and for his peace of mind. And it, it struck me as she was saying that, that isn't that exactly what we're talking about? A little piece of the kingdom just coming to a little piece of heaven Coming to it doesn't always have to be praying specifically. It could be doing something, just extending love, allowing ourselves to absorb evil and insult and not responding the same way but with another spirit. But when we do these things, a little piece of heaven is actually coming to earth. And here's the thing. When that happens, that is the real kingdom. It's not a practice run. You know, we've got this idea in our minds that this life is just a practice run for eternity. Have you heard that? I heard another pastor say or write that this week. This life is just a rehearsal. This is just a warm-up. I really, I just don't agree. Because I remember what fire drills were like at school. You remember this? Like I remember teachers used to tell us when there was going to be a fire drill coming up. They was like, okay, sometime during this class, there's going to be a fire drill, all right? So when that happens and when you hear the bell, just pack up quietly and get out and go and line up where you're supposed to go. So, of course, when the fire bell goes off, who really cares? I mean, we would just pack up incredibly slowly. We'd just continue to chat for another five or ten minutes. We'd make sure we had everything we wanted to. We'd dawdle out of the classroom and we'd go and line up. You know, there's absolutely no sense of urgency. There's absolutely no sense of importance about it because it was just a drill. And when we get this idea in our minds that, well, this life's just a drill, it's just a warm-up. The real thing's coming down the track. It's like, well, who cares then? But I think when Jesus said, thy kingdom come, he's talking about the real kingdom coming. The kingdom that actually endures for eternity. When you do something that demonstrates kindness or compassion to somebody, somehow, and I don't understand how this works, but somehow that act is going to be part of the kingdom that God completes when Jesus returns. It's not like God, God's going to come... Jesus returns and God just sweeps everything away and says, all right, you guys had a bit of fun, but now let me get, let, now the real deal's here. He's going to bring to a completion this incredible kingdom, and it's only going to be through that huge work of grace at the end of time. But nevertheless, the glimpses that we bring into the present of that future kingdom, they're the real deal. It's not a drill. This is the real kingdom. When you speak encouragement, when you bite your tongue rather than just defending yourself, when someone has a go, somehow that act is going to be swept up and made part of that kingdom that God will complete when Jesus returns. When you turn the other cheek, when you give to the one who asks you, when you lay down your life, when you go another mile, 
When you do these things, this is the kingdom coming right now on earth as it is in heaven. And that stuff is going to last. So what you do in the present isn't in vain. It's not just a drill. This is the real deal. So let me encourage you, even this week, to start praying this prayer. To start saying to God, God, your kingdom come. And maybe to start saying it in a really concrete way where you start to click your imagination into gear and actually picture that new social reality, that alternative reality taking shape in your own home or in your own workplace or in your gym or wherever you're going to be. But start to, start to pray it, start to imagine it, and then start to actually participate in it and start to work that out in your life in the smallest of ways in the, in the most everyday, mundane types of conversations because that's how the kingdom comes. And we do it all with an eye on eternity when God's finally going to wrap up the whole show. But we're anticipating that in our lives now. And as we bring that kingdom to bear, we are slowly inching the story forward and hallowing God's name. Every time you do something like this, every time you pray something like this, God's name is being hallowed. And slowly, conversation by conversation, his kingdom really is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that's what we long for and that's what we pray for. And, and even now, God, we pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray that you'd rescue those from being just mundane words, we pray, and think they really have not much to do with life. Give us eyes to see how this relates to all of life, every part of our existence. And we're sorry, God, from somehow bracketing off parts of our lives from the influence of your spirit and the influence of your kingdom. God, you want to reclaim all of us and transform every relationship we have. And even though our minds are filled with questions and doubts about whether this stuff could ever really happen and a million reasons why it couldn't, Father, we pray for it and we ask that in some small way this week, even today, your kingdom would come. Come into our lives. Come into our relationships. Come into our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.